He says, delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight is in the law. This is the law of the Lord, right? This is not just some rule book to follow. This is, this is God's word picture of who he is. Right? A lot of times when we hear laws, we, we, get, we get, I think, a wrong impression of our Bibles. Right? Because when you hear laws, what do you think of? When you hear the word law. Punishment? Really? Yes. Well, a bit of history there, I think. I'm <laughs> Doing dope? Yeah. Torah. Torah, yeah. And so you, I think you think very black and white, very almost negative, you know, do this, don't do that. You just, and, and so the word law, I think, maybe for a lot of us, brings maybe negative thoughts to mind. But when you hear this, his delight is in the law. That's because the law of God, which is all of his word, right? It's not just the do's and the don'ts. It's all of it. This, this, is, this is not some instruction manual for life. You know, okay, I have a problem, what should I do? Let me flip to this page and find out, oh, that's what I need to do. That's right. This is God's picture of, of himself. When, when Israelites were set free from captivity in Egypt and they went to Mount Sinai, and he, he said, here, if you want to get to know me, here, take this. Read this, and you get to know me. And so the psalmist who's writing this, he says that the person who is fruitful, the person whose leaf does not wither, the person who is prosperous, he delights in this. He takes joy in this. He sees this for what it is. And this, is, this, is, this, is a, this is who God is. God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. All throughout his scripture. That's, that's who he is. That's his character. He makes promise after promise after promise. And he keeps every single promise that he makes. You cannot find one promise that he has made that he has failed on. Now there are some promises that he has made that have not yet come true. But you cannot find one single promise that he has made that he has failed to keep. Not one. And keep in mind, we're talking, we're talking a long time here, right? Thousands upon thousands of years. Thousands upon thousands of words, promises. So the person who is fruitful, the person who is prosperous, the person whose leaf does not wither is one who delights in the promise-making, promise-keeping God. And, and what you see also in this is the story of us. Right? Because your Bible is meant to tell you about who God is first. Secondly, it tells us something about us. And it tells us about the relationship between God and us. So something else that we see in here is a picture of people and their belief in God's promises or times when they don't believe. And, and if you would read your Bible and just look for that, you would see pictures all over the place of people who have believed and people who have not believed. Sometimes it's the same people. We saw, we saw that in David, right? The David story of David and Goliath when he did believe, and then David and Bathsheba when he didn't believe. And every single person, there's no person who has perfectly believed every promise of God. So it's kind of a bit of relief for us, right? Because it puts us all in the same boat together. And the reason why I know that is because every single person has sinned. And that's what sin is. Sin is when we don't believe God's promises, when we choose to believe other promises. But even some of the people that we might look at as, as heroes, right, as, as the big, uh, you know, the, the people that had huge faith. I mean, Moses, for instance, right? What do you know about Moses? 
Anybody know anything about Moses? Exodus, yeah. Man who obeys God, yeah. Sorry? Yeah, he had, he had a few anger issues, yes. This is true. This is true. He, he was the leader of the nation, right? I mean, he led a nation that was filled with tens of thousands of people. Right? I mean, he was, he was a leader. He, this was God's guy. This is, this is, Moses was a guy who actually went to the top of the mountain and talked with God. Right? I mean, he saw God's back. And so, I mean, Moses and God were, like, how would you describe the relationship between Moses and God? Tight. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty tight, right? I mean, I mean when, when you're on top of the mountain and there's, like, fire on the mountain and you're, God's talking with you, that's, that's pretty good. You've got it pretty good. Right? But, and, and when you think, like, Moses, Moses had such a, a tight, a, a, a wonderful relationship with God, and yet even he, at times in his life, failed to believe the promises. Turn to Numbers. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, chapter 20. Numbers 20. So Exodus is where Moses began to lead the people out of slavery. Um... From Exodus chapter 19 all the way through Leviticus and then through Numbers chapter 10, they're kind of all camped around Mount Sinai, and then they keep going to the promised land and continue their journey. And the people of Israel were a bunch of whining, complaining people for the most part. And they would complain about many things. One of those was a lack of water, and they've done it a couple of times. Um, and in Numbers chapter 20, the people are again complaining about water. Moses, we have no water. Wine, wine, wine. And so it says in verse 6, Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly, this is Israel, to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of God appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes, to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of a rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. So pretty clear instructions from God to Moses, right? And God, and keep in mind, God said this to Moses, right? It wasn't like God told Aaron to go tell Moses, right? God said this to Moses. So he's given him some instructions. And then in verse 10, then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. Great, right? Everybody was thirsty, now they're not thirsty. Wonderful, right? Not so fast. Verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land I have given you. What went wrong? I mean, people were thirsty. God, I mean, now they're not thirsty. I mean, it all worked out, right? What went wrong? Yeah, he's supposed to talk to him, right? He hit it instead, right? Why did he do that? Yeah, so, so the heat in this, the, the, the amount of suffering was he's had, you had these whining, complaining people that were just making, right, that were just a bunch of babies, 
You know, and they were they were whining about no water, no water, no water. And Moses here had a word from God, had, had a promise from God. If you tell the rock to bring water, it'll it'll bring forth water. Right? That's a promise from God to Moses. Moses went, and instead of telling the rock, he struck the rock. Now you could blame Moses' anger, right? But that's not what the Bible says. It doesn't say because of your anger you did this. What it says why? Well, why did Moses strike the rock instead of speak to the rock? Didn't he do it before? Yeah. What's that? Didn't he do it before? He had done it before. This is true. But why did he? Why did he strike it instead of speak to it? You did not believe in me. He lacked belief in God's promise. God said, if you speak to it, water will come out. Moses hid it, and he had done that before. You're right. But that wasn't God's promise in this case. It wasn't so much the action, right? There's nothing wrong with hitting a rock instead of speaking to a rock. You know, it's not like it's like a protected rock, right? <laughs> like a national treasure or resource, right? It's a rock. But it was his belief in God's promise. And because of his unbelief, it was, it was unfruitfulness. It was, it was sin that came from him. And God said, you may not leave my people into the promise. Does that seem harsh? In some ways it does. Keep in mind, it's not just that he, he hid it instead of spoke to it. It's that he didn't believe God. So this is Moses. But I mean, like, he still believes that if he strikes the rock, water will come, which usually doesn't just happen. So, I mean, he didn't believe that water would come. Yeah, but what if God told him? I don't think he believes in that. If he didn't believe God, what did he believe? It was a God plus me kind of thing, right? It wasn't God alone, it was God plus me. And, and we have a tendency to do that as, as Christians. We, we, we have a, yes, it's some Jesus, but it also needs to be some me as well. And so therefore, yes, Jesus died for my sins, but I still have to do this, or else God's going to be mad at me. Or I still have to do this, or else God will not allow me to come into heaven. And so, you know, a lot of times we're not dumb enough to say, no, it's not Jesus at all. But we have a tendency to add to what Jesus has done. In a sense, that's what Moses is doing. He's not dumb enough to say it's not God at all. But he's, he wants to take part of the credit. He wants to take part of the glory. And so there was, a, there was an unbelief in the promise of God. And this is, again, this is Moses. Right? This is the, God talked with Moses. Moses saw the back of God. I mean, Moses and God were tight. And yet, even he did not believe. Flipping your Bibles to the New Testament. The book of Galatians. I've been there a couple times. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. So, Jesus had 12 disciples. Right? Four guys whose names start with J. John, John, James, Judas. Two guys, Peter, Philip. Two guys start with T. Thomas, Thaddeus. Then Matthew, Andrew, Bartholomew, and Simon. Four J's, two P's, two T's, and maybe just the time I'm right. One of those guys, Peter, was kind of like the top, the top guy, right? Top disciple. He was kind of the leader of them, unofficial leader. 
Um, again, he was he was tied with Jesus, who is the Son of God. So yeah, Moses tied with God. You have Peter tied with Jesus. He was one of the one of the three guys that really do him well. And Peter was the guy that that was going to basically lead the group of disciples after Jesus died. And, and he was well-respected amongst all the churches. Um, and there's another guy by the name of Paul, you know of, who wrote 13 of your New Testament books. Um, and so Peter and, and Paul are kind of the two, two big wigs and two, two big shots in, um, in the New Testament. And there's, there's this situation here in which the two of them were together. And they were in this town called Antioch. And, and Paul notices something about Peter. All right, watch this. This is a verse 11 of chapter 2 in Galatians. Uh, but when Cephas, Cephas is another name for Peter. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision of the party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So what was happening was this. Jews and Gentiles typically did not get along too well. They, you know, they didn't really, Jews didn't want anything to have to do with Gentiles. Um, but Jesus, he basically changed all of that, you know, because what was separating the two of them was a bunch of laws. And Jesus, in coming, said, hey, there's, there's no longer anything that divides Jew and Gentile, because you are both one in Christ. Okay, and so now, there is kind of this weird deal where if you are somebody who used to be a Jew, but you were now a Christian, now you would actually hang out with Gentiles. You could. It wasn't, you, you weren't breaking any sort of Jewish law by hanging out with Gentiles. And so Peter was going around, and, and he and Paul were in the same town, and they were eating, and they were doing ministry with the Gentiles. These guys who were former Jews were now hanging out with the Gentiles. But there were some other Jews that came to town. And when they did, Peter was like, and he, he separated himself from the Gentiles. It was like his friends, it's like if you're hanging out with some, some people that maybe are not the most popular people in the world, right? And a group of your friends or a group of the popular people come, and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, I wasn't hanging out with them. No, I don't, I don't know them. Like, and you all of a sudden... When somebody else comes, you have you want to have nothing to do with the people that you were just talking with a moment ago, right? And that's that's what happened. So Peter was talking with the Gentiles, hanging out with the Gentiles, eating with them. This group of his Jewish buddies came, and all of a sudden Peter was like, "Who was? I don't know who they were. Was I talking? No, I wasn't talking with them. I wasn't eating with them. No, you must have been seeing things. That was a different guy. That wasn't me, right? And so he acted differently when when the Jewish folks came." To the point that even Barnabas was led astray. Paul saw this. And keep in mind, this is Peter, right? Like, this is Peter, like, buddy of Jesus, Peter. Like, you know I mean? Head on, so like, big, you know, big shot at Peter, who, who knew Jesus personally, um, who, had, who had actually talked with Jesus after he was resurrected from the grave. So, this is Peter. And, and Peter was doing this. He was acting one way in front of one group of people and a different way in front of a different group. Paul saw this. Now, if you were Paul and you noticed this, that somebody was being a hypocrite, right? How would you talk to that person? What would you say to that person? Shame on you. Shame on you. What would you say? If you were Paul, all right, let's say Sean was Peter. 
book of 1 Thessalonians. And I want you to see a picture again of, this is Paul. And David said he preached this in church a few weeks ago. So I'll, I'll leave a lot of it out because I'm sure David covered it all. But I, I want you to look at this passage through the lens of fruitfulness. All right, through the lens of a healthy heart being fruitful and unhealthy hearts being unfruitful. And, and I think if we look at this through here, we, we will see that there were some there are some ways that Paul was very fruitful in his ministry. And the reason why he was fruitful is because his heart was believing in the promises of God instead of the lies of Satan. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Alright, so what's, can you see any heat? Conflict, right? Not only that, but element of, of it says right there in verse 2, we have suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. Does anybody know what happens? Hold your finger there and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 16. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. this is Paul and his buddy Silas in Philippi. Uh, they were going around and they, they were going around preaching about the gospel. They were going around and they healed a, a slave girl who was possessed by a demon. Um, made some people upset. And in verse 22, uh, says of Acts chapter 16, says the crowd joined in attacking them. This is Paul and Silas. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave them orders to beat them with rods. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safe. So these guys had been beaten because of their preaching of the gospel of Jesus. They, they, were, they were beaten and they were thrown in jail, treated like a bunch of criminals. All right, so that was, that was their suffering. And so you might imagine that, let's say you went home to Vienna and you walked down the street sharing the gospel and you got beat up. The next day you woke up, what would you do? I do. I probably wouldn't go back out and preach the gospel again, right? I mean, I'd be like, it's not, it's not for me to go home to America now. <laughs> you know, my plane, right? I'm not going to go back out there. If, I've been, if I go and, and preach tonight on the street and I get beat up, I'm not going out tomorrow morning, right? I'm going home. But these guys, they kept going, right? Even though we had suffered we still have boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. Now, the question is why? I mean, that, there's fruit there, right? The fruit is them going and preaching the gospel of God. Right? That's, that's, that's a, we look at that and say, hey, that's a fruitful life right there. But why was Paul able to suffer and not have that prevent him from preaching the gospel? <coughs> What's that? Yes, which one? That's a great statement, and it's an important point, because it's easy to talk about God's promises in a very general way, but one of my hopes is that coming from here, that you will begin to read your Bible and looking for specific promises of God. 
Because we need to be able to attach our, our hopes to specific promises. Because we have very specific situations, we have very specific fears, we have very specific um, temptations to sin. And if we just leave it in a general promise of God type of thing, it's not very helpful. Alright, so I talked to you about Romans chapter 8, one of those chapters that is filled with a lot of promises. Here's one of the promises in Romans chapter 8. This is written by Paul, who also wrote in 1 Thessalonians 2. Um, so chap- Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says, I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Alright, that's a promise. The suffering right now cannot even be compared to the glory that awaits. What, what's, what's being said there? What's the promise there? That however much of suffering here on earth is nothing in comparison to the amazing nothing in heaven. That, which means that, that it is such a big difference between the two that you can't even draw a, a comparison between them. Right? If, if things are kind of close, you can kind of compare them. Right? I mean, if you have a, if you have two glasses, even if one glass, even if, a, you know, even if you have a pitcher, right, and then a smaller glass, you can compare those two amounts because you can kind of see a little bit, right? But there's such a big difference between the suffering that we are going through here and the glory that awaits. Like, you can't even compare them because they're so far apart. That's a promise. The question is, do you believe that promise? Paul believed. Paul believed it to the point that even though he suffered in Philippi, right, and getting beaten, like that's like we're not. It's not just like people make fun of him, right? I mean, yeah, it's not that kind of beating. It's like, yeah, right? I mean, I mean, rods, right? Hand out some. You guys play baseball? Here? No, that's not Go get a bunch of sticks from a tree and start beating the snot out of Sean, right? See how long. See if he ever comes back, right? But I mean, like, we're, we're talking beating with rods. We're, we're not talking about somebody just said something fun or mean about you with, with their word. We're talking about beaten and thrown into jail. That's some pretty intense suffering. And it, even though that was very physically painful, it was so little in comparison to the great glory that awaits us. That Paul, believing that promise, instead of going home, saying, well, I'm done, I did my part. I'm just going to go and enjoy life in my hometown now. He kept going. And he kept proclaiming the gospel of God. So do you see where there's that heat? Then there's the question. As a result of the heat, well, I believe that and it is way better if I have a comfortable life. It is way better if I have a life that's free from suffering. It's way better if I just have fun, enjoy things. So I'm just going to go home and do that because getting beaten is really not fun. Or do I believe in the promise of God that the suffering that I've endured now is so, so little in comparison to the glory that awaits that it's worth going and proclaiming the truth of Jesus to other people? He believed in that promise and he kept going and there's fruit. So even though you know he then we had suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. As you know, we had boldness in our God. So boldness is, would be a fruit, right? Boldness that came from his belief in God to declare to the gospel of God in the midst, in the midst of much conflict. For 
Our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Now there's, there's a lot in this here. All right? There's a lot of potential lies that Paul could have believed. Right, what are some potential lies that Paul could have believed that would have led to sinful thorns in his life? Do you see any in there? Sure. So in, 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 in these verses, in verse 3 and 4, um, and even 5, you see some, some specific sins. Alright, it talks about words of flattery. So, words of flattery is when you say something to somebody, just make them think good of you. You know, I mean, if, if you go and you just start giving somebody compliment after compliment after compliment, so they think, how, how, hey, Joe's a really great guy, all those compliments he paid me. Or, so you see words of flattery, you see attempt to deceive, right? It's called lying, right? That's a, that's a very visible sin. Um, error, just being flat out saying something that isn't true. Um, you see that, so you see these, these different sins, but what is, and, then, and there was a temptation for Paul to live in such a way where, where, where those sins were, were what was seen, right? And there's a very specific piece, of, a very specific lie in here in verse four. It says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God. Right? What's the heart piece that was going on in Paul that led him to act in a way that was fruitful instead of the way that was sinful? So there's, there's, there's a heart decision, right? There's a belief. Which is, which is the better thing? Which is the more valuable thing? To please people or to please God? It's a good Christian answer. <laughs> but a lot of times it's not that simple, is it? I mean, for Paul, he had the choice. I, I could speak in such a way where my goal was to please these people. And if he believed that was truly the more satisfying thing, if he believed that was the more delightful thing to his heart, I'm just going to say what somebody needs to hear, what, sorry, what somebody wants to hear, then what he would have done is he would have Lie, he would have deceived, he would have spoken error, he would have he would have used words of flattery, right? He would have he would have spoken a certain way if his heart believed that pleasing people was the best thing, was the promise that was going to give him the most joy. Instead, what did Paul believe? To please God is better than pleasing. Please God is going to be more satisfying. Please God is going to be more delightful to my heart. To please God is the greater treasure, is the greater joy. And so because he believed that, what did he not do? Stay home. He didn't stay home, true. He, because he believed that, he did not speak from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. He did not use words of flattery in verse 5. He did not... He says, as you know, the pretext for greed. Right? He, what people would do is they would go around in this day and they would go and travel from city to city and they would say things so that people would give them money. And that's how they would make their living. And so a temptation is, okay, if I need to say the right thing for somebody to give me money, 
I want to say something that they're really going to like to hear, right? Or something that they're not going to like to hear. You know, there's there's lots of there's lots of people who claim to be Christian pastors that do this very thing. You see them on TV a lot. <laughs> and what they're doing is they're saying things to you that believe that that, that you want to hear. With the, with the goal, the only goal of you giving them money. Hey, if you will give to God's work, then God's going to do this for you. God's going to do this for you. This will go well. This, I mean, and they make all these false promises. They, and whether or not you send them money is dependent upon what? Do you believe what they're saying? Right? And there's lots of people who do. There's lots of people who believe those lies. As a result of believing in those lies, they act a certain way. So again, Paul said, you know what? I'm, I'm here because I have been approved by God. I'm here not to please people. I'm, I'm here because they're, the greater joy is pleasing God. So if that means that I have to tell you something that you might not like to hear, I'm going to tell you what you, what you don't like to hear. Last night, I, t- I told you about... Um, the friend of mine who had asked to Skype with me, um, we, we talked last night, and I had to tell him some things that he did not want to hear. That's what, that's what brothers and sisters do for one another. Now, if, if my goal was to, man, I really want to make sure that he likes me by the end of this conversation, or I want to make sure that he's still my friend and we're done talking, then I probably wouldn't have told him some hard things. Probably would have been, oh man, that's okay. We all make mistakes. Don't worry about it. We're all sinners. Jesus still loves you. Right? I would have taken more of that kind of, it's okay. (laughs) 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 Right? (laughs) And if I believed that having my friend think well of me, having my friend think I'm wonderful was more satisfying, is more delightful to my heart, it's what I would have done. And yet if I believe that God's approval of me is a greater joy, that God's approval of me was a greater treasure to my heart, then I'm going to be willing to say things. Not, I'm not going to say them meanly. I'm not going to say things with the, with the goal of hurting him. But I'm going, to, I'm going to speak some hard truth to him. But those actions are connected to promises. And too often, we just look at the action and we say, well, I need to do more of this or I need to do less of this. What we ignore is what's going on in our heart. What has to change in our heart that would lead to me being more fruitful? That would help me be less fruitful or less unfruitful, less ineffective. Remember 2 Peter? If if you're doing all of these bad things, it's because you have forgotten the promises of God. And believing in the promises keeps you from being unfruitful and unaffected. So the question is, which promises will you believe? You will believe some promises. It's impossible not to believe promises. Just like it's impossible for you not to worship something. You will always worship something or someone. That's not a question. That's the way we were made. It's a question of who will you worship or what will you worship. You will always believe somebody's promises. The question of whose promises will you believe? And all throughout Scripture, God's appeal is believe in my promises. And, and he shows you that he always kept his promises. That's part of what we are to do here. We're to read and see all the promises of God that he has kept. Even though people have been really stupid a lot of times, right? 
I mean, have been really thick-headed and have been dumb and have been... Yeah, there's lots of adjectives I can use to describe <laughs> Right? But God has never failed to keep his promise. And so we're meant to read all of God's promises and see him keeping those. Promise after promise after promise after promise after promise. And we're meant to look back on those and we're meant to be filled with gratitude for that and awe and joy. And that gratitude and awe and joy is meant to fuel our faith in the things that he has promised to do. And so because I can look back, I mean, think about it. If, if a friend lies to you, right? Say you have a friend who lies to you three times in a week. And you know it. And they make you another promise. What, what will your... What will you, how will you react to their promise that they have made you? Right? I mean, and there's good reason for that, right? Because they have lied to you multiple times. But if a friend, if another friend has, has kept three promises in that meeting, they've made a promise to you, would you believe in another promise they've made? Yeah. Why is that? Because you've seen them keep their other promises. And that's what God wants to show you here. He wants to show you himself that he, he keeps all of his promises. So therefore, all the promises that he has made already to you, you can trust him because you can't find a single one that he has made that he has not kept. Not a single one. And that's why books like, Romans, or chapters like Romans chapter 8 is such an important chapter because that's filled with so many promises but there's not a single book that you can read in here that doesn't have those kind of promises if you're looking for those if you read this as more than just a story and it is it's more than, it's more than just stories it's more than just history it, it is that but it's more than that this is God's picture of himself this is, his, this is his, his display of himself he wants to show you him he wants to tell you about all his promises Paul goes on to tell you that if, if you, I mean, his belief in God's promises produced even more fruit. Right? So, verse 8. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Right? You shouldn't read that and simply walk away and say, okay, I need to do a better job sharing the gospel. I need to do a better job sharing my life. Let's go. Let's make it happen. That's not what you should do. Because what that is, is that is that is being dependent upon your will. I can make this happen. I can do it. Let's go do it. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. Right? But instead, if you read this and you see that it is connected to a promise of God, and it's your belief in the promise that will lead you to do this. A, a, a promise that would lead you to either share or not share your life. There's, there's many of them. Um, one that comes to mind would be Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does it, word, what does it mean to be condemned? That there's no hope. Um, there's no hope for those who are in Christ Jesus? No, there's no, there's no hope for those who are. It's true, there is no hope. It's, it's not exactly a definition of condemned, though. But, but it's true that there is no hope for those who are condemned. What does it mean to be condemned? To be judged. To be judged? Okay. And so, when it says there is no condemnation, there is no judgment, does anybody have a different 
word numbers or any no different words that like No sentence. Okay. No sentence. Yeah, that works. Romans eight chapter Romans chapter eight verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Different word anywhere? Punishment? What's that? So there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why, why might I feel condemned apart from Christ? If I'm not in Christ Jesus, why would I feel condemned? Um, I Maybe, maybe not. But if, if, if apart from apart from Jesus, if it's God who's doing the condemning, He's looking at my life, right? He's looking at all the good things and all the bad things, and He's seeing that there's way more bad things than there are good things, and, and I'm, I'm condemned. I mean, not it's not that it's the good or the bad outweigh the good, but just because there's any bad at all, I am I am judged to be guilty. And I'm, I'm going to feel that. I'm going to know that. Even people who try to ignore the fact that they are that they do bad things, deep down, they really feel that that guilt. They really feel that that condemnation. Because they know that no matter how many good things I do, I'm still in my heart a pretty bad person. But if you are in Jesus, all that condemnation has been removed. So you don't need to prove yourself anymore. You don't need to prove that you're a good person because it's not it's not dependent upon you. God's acceptance of you is because of Jesus, not because of you. And so if that's the case, I can go and have a relationship with somebody, and I don't have to prove to them what a good Christian I am. Because you know what? God's love for me is not, it's not because I'm a good Christian. God's love for me is because of Jesus. And so if I truly believe to the, to the, to the level, to the extent that I believe that there is no condemnation for me because of Jesus Christ, I'm going to be able to go with you and, and be honest about my sin. Not try to hide my sin, not try to pretend like my sin's not there, not try to present, you know, not try to pretend like I'm a really, really, really good person. I can be honest with you. But if I'm if I don't believe in that promise, that there's no condemnation in Jesus Christ, when I go to you, I'm gonna probably not show you too much of my sin. And so whether or not you believe in that promise has a lot to do with whether or not you're willing to share your life and the gospel too, right? Because if, if you really, if, if the idea that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, if that gives you joy, if that gives you hope, you're going to want to tell people. But if that doesn't give you any joy, if, that, if you don't really fully believe that promise, if that doesn't give you much hope, you're probably not going to tell people, right? Because we tell people things that we're excited about, right? When you get an amazing gift, what do you usually do? You tell people, right? Hey, I got this awesome thing. You got to come over and check it out. It's great. Because you're excited. Because you've received a, a wonderful treasure, a wonderful gift. That's what we naturally do. Do you believe in the gift that you have been given in Jesus? Does that title of no condemnation, does that give you any joy? Does that give you any hope? Do you see that as a, as a treasure that I am in Christ? There's a connection between your belief in that promise and your willingness to share the gospel and share your life. There's a connection there. So to the extent, remember, I said the other day that it's not an all or nothing kind of thing. Right? It's not a 0%, 100%. It's, it's, it's all, you know, some days, there are days when I believe that promise more. 
there are some days when I believe that promise less. When I believe it more, then I, I'm more willing to share the gospel, I'm more willing to share the life. When I believe it less, I'm less willing to share the gospel, I'm less willing to share my life. There's a connection between how much I believe in God's promise and how much I have a fruitful life. And that's why Ephesians talks about the spiritual battle. Every day is a fight. Every single day is a fight to believe in God's promises. Until Jesus comes back and all of his, all of his promises are fulfilled, there's going to be a fight to believe them. And that's why, you, that, that's why it's important to read this every day. It's not important to read this every day so that when God comes back, he looks at his report card and says, Hey, you read your Bible like 60% of the time. Good job. Well done. You get an extra special mansion in heaven. Right? That's not what God does. It's not some sort of spiritual report card that he keeps. The reason why we need to read this goes back to what Peter said. We all forget. The reason why you need people in this room. Church is not an optional thing. I want you to hear that church is not an optional thing. Community is not an optional thing. You need community. If you ever get to the point where you think church is, eh, take it, leave it. Or church is just when I'm, I'm going to show up, I'm going to listen to a sermon. Or better yet, I'm just going to listen to a podcast, right? I'm going, I'm going to church and listen to a sermon. Right? I'm, I'm even gonna, I'll even sing along with the songs. It's great. I'll, I'm going to, you know, there's so many churches that, that will, you can stream the, the service live on the internet now, right? And you just go to their website, you go to our church, you know, you dial it up and sing along with the songs, you can hear a sermon, you get great, I went to church, no, you can go to church. <laughs> you can sing your books. That's okay. You can, but that's, why would we want to do that? What would make us think that that is okay? Yeah, we, we like we like our comfort. We don't we, we feel maybe condemnation, and so we want people to stay as far away from us as possible. We're not we don't want that relationship. Or maybe we're arrogant, right? And we think, hey, I got this. I'm good. I don't need anybody. I'm fine by myself, right? And there's so many so many promises about the value of community. About well, I know David's been preaching on unity. And church is not optional. Doesn't matter where you live. Doesn't matter what stage of life you're in, all, you're always going to be able to find excuses not to be a part of church. And when I mean church, I don't mean just going on Sunday morning. I mean more than that. I mean being involved with people, sharing life with one another. That's what church is. Church isn't just showing up and doing your service for a little bit and then leaving and going home. Church is a family. Brothers and sisters, I mean, think about it. Like your own family, like if you just showed up like for an hour, right, and ate a meal and then left, right? Would that be really, does that qualify as being part of a family? If all you did was show up for meal times at your house? Some of you may be tempted to do that, I understand that. That'd be really nice. I want to talk with mom or dad or, yeah, I get that. But you might be, um, you might be somebody who's renting a room, right? That's, that's not part of a family. Church is a family. You need one another because we all forget God's promises. So you need to be reading God's word. You need to be praying, God, would you convince my heart? And that's, that's the other thing. It's, like, it's not up to you to convince yourself. You know, it's not like, man, if I just, I'm going to sleep with my, with my Bible under my pillow every night. Because then if I do that, then like, I'm going to believe God's promises. It's like going to like, seep into me, right? If you read Galatians chapter 3, 
what that tells you is that it is the Holy Spirit's job to convince you of God's promises. He is the one who causes you to believe more and more and more and more. And he's going to do that. He's not going to just get that job done, but he's going to do that in a way that is most exalting to Christ. But it's about the promises of God that he's given you, which are a testimony to him and his character. That's what communion is. You know, communion, so 1 Corinthians chapter 11 talks about communion. And Paul says, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I delivered, starting verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took a cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And when he says proclaim the Lord's death, what does he mean? Does he mean just walking around saying, Jesus died, Jesus died, Jesus died? Is that what he, is that what he means? So what does Paul mean when he says you, you proclaim the Lord's death? I'm sorry? On your behalf? Yeah, which is, which is a promise of God, right? That Jesus died in your place. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Because God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. While not according to the spirit. Well, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So God has sent Jesus to die in your place. And he's taken all of the wrath. Not just some of the wrath, not just most of the wrath, all of it. That's a promise. So you don't have to do anything in order to gain God's approval. Now, does that mean we just don't do anything at all? We just like, do whatever we want? No. But it means that our obedience is not to get God's approval. Our obedience comes from the joy of already having it. Because of the happiness and the delight that comes from knowing that you are already loved. So we obey. But it's for a different reason. It's not so you get something. It's because you already have it. You just need to believe that you have it. And allow your obedience to come from that joy. But we, we take communion, and we're about to take communion in just a little bit. We take communion because we do that in remembrance of Jesus, and who he is, and what he has done. So we remember and we proclaim it. Remember, proclaim. Remember, proclaim. That's, that's, why we, that's why we take communion. We remember who Jesus is, the promises that he made, all that he did. We remember, proclaim. Remember, proclaim. And that's what our lives are supposed to be. Remember, proclaim. Remember, proclaim. And when you forget... You add that other step of repent. Repentance and then remember, proclaim. Remember, proclaim. When I forget, I repent. And then I remember, proclaim. That's all of life. That's why you take, uh, that's, that's what communion can be. It's not just some sort of ritual that you do, because this is church, it's just one of the things we do, it's kind of like giving money or all the other things that we do, right? It's not just some sort of ritual that we do. Communion is part of us remembering 
and proclaiming gospel truth. Remembering and proclaiming the promises of God. Now it also says in here that those who there you go, verse 27 Therefore whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let the person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What that means is two things. Number one, if you are not a Christian, you should not take communion. This is is an act of remembering and proclaiming something that you actually believe. And so if you don't believe it, it's actually more honorable to say no thanks and to not do it. Secondly, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, if, if there is some sin between you and another one of your brothers and sisters that are part of your church family, then you should also not take communion. And so for you guys here, if you have something, if there's an element of sin that is between you and one of your other brothers and sisters, I would, I would urge you, don't take communion. If you need to right now, you can go have a conversation and repent and confess and, and ask forgiveness and, and be reconciled with one another. But if you are not a Christian... And you don't believe this, then to take the communion is actually a sin in and of itself. If you have sin between you and somebody else, remember, the gospel is about reconciliation. The gospel is about doing away with sin. And so if there is sin right now that you haven't dealt with, that you have not apologized for, that you haven't asked forgiveness for, then you shouldn't take communion either. Because communion is about declaring gospel truths. We're going to do, I'm, I'm not sure how you guys normally do communion, but we're going to do communion a little bit differently. Um, in just a moment, um, I'm going to grab the, um, we have a tray of crackers, and then also another that has, the outer circle is juice. Juice. <laughs> juice. The outer circle is juice, the inner circle is wine. Alright? So, <laughs> remember that, or you might be surprised. <laughs> and so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to sit up over there on a stool. And I think it's going to play a little bit. And I want to invite you guys just to sit here for a few quiet moments and just pray and thank God. Think If you want to read through Romans chapter 8 or you just want to pray and thank God for, the, for what Jesus has done, for his work on your behalf, wonderful. When you want to, you're welcome to come up and, and you can come and, and take communion if you don't want to because you're either not a Christian or because there is some sin between you and another one of your brothers and sisters that you have not dealt with, then I would encourage you to just, just stay seated. Um, and once, uh, once it seems like everybody is done, then we're going to sing a few more songs. And we'll, uh,